Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. At the onset of the coronavirus crisis, the government of India offered a moratorium on loan repayment as part of a package of measures to support the economy through the lockdown. The loan moratorium extended by the government coming to an end on the 31st of August. The gradual opening up of the economy has led to a modest improvement in some economic indicators, but the economy definitely not out of the woods analysts are predicting a sharp decline in economic output this year this has also led to mounting concerns about a wave of bankruptcies engulfing the economy as firms struggle to pay their debts after the moratorium ends even as this bankruptcy crisis looms the government has suspended its insolvency and bankruptcy process for a year leaving open the question of how the coming bankruptcies will be dealt with as the indian economy looks to get on the path of recovery this will be a crucial issue to address in this episode of interpreting india we analyze the implication of india's impending bankruptcy crisis on the economy and the regulatory institutions will india's framework for tackling bankruptcy tap under the weight of the current crisis how might all this impact the economy and what finally can the government possibly do to avert this bankruptcy crisis Joining us today to discuss these issues is Bhargavi Zaveri. Bhargavi is a visiting faculty member of the Securities Law Program at the Government Law College, Mumbai, and the Narsimonji Institute for Management Studies. She has previously held research position at the Indira Gandhi Institute of Development Research, the National Institute of Public Finance and Policy, and Harvard Law School. Bhargavi has assisted in setting up India's first information utility. Bhargavi, welcome to Tipping India. delighted to have you with us today thanks shrinath happy to be here so let's start by just talking a little bit about the main features of the system for addressing the bankruptcy the insolvency and bankruptcy code Could you just tell our listeners what the system is geared up to doing and what are the main aspects in terms of the process sure so you know before we get into the ibc right uh, i think more fundamental question is that why do we need a bankruptcy law you know uh, intuitively uh, one would think that actually if i have a loan contract with somebody and if somebody defaults i should be able to sue or i should be able to arbitrate i should be able to recover in the way that my contract envisages then why does a bankruptcy law force me to do things which are not written in my contract right it's it's actually pretty counterintuitive so everywhere in the world the bankruptcy law really tries to solve three problems one is the first problem is a you know just to preempt a race to the bottom problem whenever there is financial distress in an entity what typically happens is that all creditors try to recover the maximum possible that they can by pursuing different remedies now that means that the creditor who actually approaches court first is likely to you know be the best place and you and that's not an optimal situation because you know that may actually deteriorate the value of the estate right so the whole idea is how do you preempt this 
race to the bottom and how do you get the creditors to sit together you solve the collective action problem how do you get them to sit together figure out what's going on with this entity how much of it can be salvaged how much of it just needs to be liquidated simply because it cannot function and what is the extent of the haircut you know that's what they call it in financial markets lingo but it's really a compromise what is the extent of the debt waiver that you are that each creditor is willing to take such that everyone else everybody is better off right and the third problem that the bankruptcy law tries to solve is the time and the value maximization problem so bankruptcy you know my favorite quote is bankruptcy a bankrupt entity is like a melting ice cube for every day that is lost the value of the estate deteriorates really fast and disproportionately and therefore every minute that you actually save in the bankruptcy resolution actually some creditors benefiting the value of the estate is getting saved so how do you do all of this namely stop creditors from running and pursuing their individual remedies get them to sit together around a table and figure out a way to value maximize for the benefit of everybody in a time efficient way that is what every bankruptcy law around the world seeks to do and this is the deal that you know we all negotiate that look i have my contract and actually as per my contract i can actually just sell this scooter that somebody has that the borrower has pledged to me and i'll be good but the bankruptcy law will actually give me or give all of us the body of creditors much more than you know uh, each individual part of of the debtor so therefore we all agree to forego our contractual rights and we agree to sit around the table and do this together so that's what bankruptcy law seeks to do the now everything else in the bankruptcy code is really then about the tools right so for example the ibc says that the moment anybody has committed a default the moment any borrower commits a default of a value exceeding a certain threshold now it's 1 crore it used to be 1 lakh before any creditor can actually trigger the ibc which is they can go to the nclt and uh, all they have to show is that there was a debt contract and there has been a default the nclt which is the national company law tribunal is then supposed to trigger the code the nclt cannot go into questions like oh but the debtor is otherwise healthy why would you want to trigger the bankruptcy law oh, or the debtor's balance sheet is great or the debtor has great uh, sort of uh, you know uh, promoters to back it up no nothing doing the creditor whoever he is whatever the size of the default is as long as there is a debt and there is a default the ibc has to be triggered and you know shinath there is some history to this why do we have this because before the ibc actually creditors were treated differently depending on whether they are banks employees vendors we conventionally think of only banks as creditors but the truth is that even an employee who's not paid by his firm is actually a creditor of the company is owed money and if it, if he's defaulted upon he should be as entitled to take the firm to bankruptcy as a bank right so the bankruptcy code first of all it just equalizes the right to trigger okay uh, secondly it says that once the trigger happens then the board is suspended management is suspended and uh, the affairs of the firm are then taken over by what we call resolution professionals these are people who are really insolvency practitioners they know how to run a firm as a going concern while the creditors are sitting around the table they know how to uh, package the firm and put it up for sale uh, invite bids uh, negotiate with creditors that's the job of the insolvency professional so the insolvency professional is appointed uh, he convenes 
a committee of creditors conducts their meetings this shares information with them on what is the value of the firm left what are the liabilities what are the assets uh, who are the employees who are the big vendors once the committee of creditors sits around the table they decide is this firm is this firm worth being kept as a going concern that is if the firm survives will we all be better off than by selling the assets of the firm in liquidation right away so you know here if you see the bankruptcy law reforms committee report they make a distinction between what we understand as uh liquidity uh liquidity of a crunch and a complete breakdown of the business model of the firm so to explain this there are some there are some sort of financial constraints that just arise from temporary uh mismatch in cash flow and there are others which actually are a function of the way the business is so for example today if i am the borrower and you guys are my creditors and i am making typewriters right you all are sitting around the table scratching your heads will bhargavi ever be able to repay her loan and you all think that it doesn't matter how much of a haircut we take even if we give her five more years to repay her loan there is no way that a typewriter business is likely to generate any cash flow and therefore it's just best to liquidate her Uh, machinery her factory and get whatever we can right now on the other hand if i'm a firm that does something which right now i'm not able to repay your debt simply because there is a mismatch in cash flow uh you might say that actually you know it's a cycle it's a business cycle issue right now for example steel is at an all time low uh but maybe over the years uh she will be able to her, her business model is sound and once the business cycle business cycle turns around maybe she will be able to repay us that is when you choose to keep the firm as a going concern while all this decision making happens the firm has to keep running i mean electricity bills have to be paid uh, employees have to be paid uh, consumers have to be serviced the insolvency professional keeps doing that in the meantime okay and the creditors committee has about 6 months to decide which way they want to go uh, that time period of course has been extended and we can talk about it a little bit later but at the end of 6 months the creditors committee has in front of it either bids which the insolvency professional has invited maybe the promoter himself has said that look i'm willing to pay you all with a 10% haircut you return my firm to me or uh, maybe there are other people who are interested in acquiring and the creditors have to decide do they want it or do they want to just send it to liquidation if they do not make a decision within that time period the firm automatically goes to liquidation so that's the sort of inbuilt system of disincentivizing procrastination amongst creditors which is what we had been seeing for a very very long time in india where creditors just don't decide whether they want to take the haircut or they keep holding out and then in the end nothing is left to salvage right so this is this is some sort of an inbuilt system where unless you decide within 180 days or 270 days what you want to do the firm automatically goes into liquidation the default is liquidation um and therefore and then in liquidation since everything is sold in a piecemeal manner nobody gets anything recovery values are typically less and everybody loses out so that in the hope is that that incentivizes promoter uh, creditors to be rational and uh, decide how much haircut they are willing to accept and um, uh, yes yeah, so at the end of 180 or 270 days it's either liquidation or resolution uh, and if it's resolution then great the resolution plan is voted upon by the creditors committee if it enjoys a 66% vote 
then it is again taken back to the national company law tribunal whose job is only to make sure that the voting process was uh, followed a due process and it was fair uh, and not get into the commercials of the resolution plan now this is the basic structure of the ipc we can get into more details or specific aspects if you want to discuss anything more in detail sure thanks that that is a really nice overview uh, and in your remarks you already mentioned in the passing that there were some kinds of problems with this process as faced uh, as faced since its inception right and i can think of a series of them just based on what you were saying first of course was that we didn't have a very trained cadre of insolvency professionals to begin uh, secondly you know the deadlines in the courts as you were saying have been extended third there have been kind of competing judicial pronouncements on what the means what the seniority of creditors is etc but you just give us a, right. a, a very quick account really of how this process has performed and what are the two or three main failings in the last 5 years that we have seen it in operation right um okay so i would really classify ibc's life cycle into three phases okay so the earliest phase was you know when the first 6 months of ibc when actually we didn't see a pick up at all okay we didn't see any banks coming to nclt and triggering uh uh the ibc although we all know post 2015 that the extent of npas after the asset quality review were out there in the public for everybody to see i would have thought that there would have been at least some sort of moral pressure on banks to try start resolving show some sort of speed and you know even for the just even for the sake of just signaling right uh, go to the nclt and trigger uh, the ibc in respect of really old bad debts but we didn't see much of a pick up at all and um, what we saw is that in the first 6 months of ibc it was mostly employees and unpaid vendors who were really coming to the nclt and triggering the code which was a surprise because nobody really expected that to happen but this is what happened in the first 6 months and we didn't see much activity at all after that uh, rbi actually issued a circular it's you know it's called it's in the bankruptcy world it's a famous it's called the jan 12 uh circular uh, the feb 12 circular which was which actually identified 12 non performing accounts which banks should push to ibc so you see you have a regulatory intervention coming in in a place where where actually commercial decision making should have decided which accounts to take to ibc right normally a bank should have been able to decide that out of the five people who defaulted to me i'm going to take these three to ibc these two i'm still going to try and resolve outside so after the first 6 months we actually saw excessive intervention where we, you know uh, rbi was intervening rbi suspend what also happened simultaneously in the next 6 months is that rbi suspended every single debt restructuring scheme that existed outside of ibc so while in the first 6 months no activity next 6 months ibc seemed to be the only game in town which is that if you have defaulted on your debt the only thing that seemed to be happening is that people used to trigger the ibc which means that the system was overburdened with cases and uh, that is not a good thing for a very new law that so structurally changes the way people enforce debt contracts right that means you'll see that courts are overburdened you'll see that actually jurisprudence is evolving in all sorts of ways because nobody knows how to deal with the sudden complex questions that used to come up in the early in the in these cases that are suddenly coming to the nclt left right and center um we also saw that 
a lot of intervention in these six months, even from the parliamentary, the legislative end. Uh, so essentially, uh, what the parliament did is that they amended the Banking Regulation Act to give more powers to the central government to direct the RBI to in turn direct banking uh, their banks to take you know large uh, non-performing assets to the IBC. So from zero activity in the first six months, you have too much activity in the next six months, and though that activity is on all fronts. Like like you mentioned, one is the judiciary itself couldn't cope with it, and therefore was extending timelines left, right, and center because of so many cases coming in of different hues and colors, different sizes, uh, different ownership entities. Some of them were government-owned, some of them were private-owned. Privately owned. What you saw is that you saw conflicting judgments coming across from the 15 benches of NCLT all around India. You saw legislative amendments happening uh, and legislative amendments which were fairly extreme, right? So, for example, since... Uh, the courts couldn't cope with the 180-day and the 270-day timeline. Finally, the law was amended to say that, okay, you have you have to give the committee of creditors 330 days. So right from 180 days, it goes to 330 days. At the same time, what they saw is that in a lot of these firms, the promoters themselves were making the bids for acquiring the companies and that created some legitimate concerns about you know moral hazard and should creditors accept bids from promoters who have defaulted on them for such a long time. So you had this, uh, you know, really radical amendment to the IBC, which is Section 29A, which essentially said that if the promoter is a willful defaulter and if a willful defaulter makes a bid for his own firm in the IBC process, he uh, it should he's not eligible for it. So you have those kind of amendments being made. So largely a lot of a set of reactive amendments, right? And then you have, then COVID hits, which is in March, uh, 2020 and then suddenly everybody's in this you know phase of but now IBC won't work so you have nothing much happening to too much happening to this phase where let's avoid IBC at all costs and let's suspend IBC in its entirety all to all together so it's just been this very schizophrenic approach towards the IBC uh, which arguably has caused a lot of wrong jurisprudence coming about and uh, uh, not really, uh, I'm not sure to what extent that can support a stable bankruptcy law for a very long time to come. Sure. And after the pandemic set in and we went into lockdown and so on, the government also suspended the IBC for a year. Now, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what the rationale for it was, because I've seen, you know, some people claiming that the suspension of the IBC actually restricts some avenues for business restructuring while others have said it provides relief to firms, you know, which are not in a position to be solvent in a context like this. So what is your assessment uh, of why the government took this step and how it's playing out? Sure. So, uh, Srinath, I'll tell you what. So when COVID hit in March 2020 and when the lockdown was announced, okay, um, two, two things were done. One is... Of course, RBI came up with its moratorium, loan moratorium, because they said that for the next six months, um, if you have a working capital loan or if you have a credit card loan, um, you may choose not to repay your dues and you may choose to accumulate your dues along with the interest and pay it at the end of six months. So that is one thing. The other thing is that for three months from March to about June, they kept dilly-dallying 
on we may just suspend the IBC if things don't improve. Okay, so you already have these signals being sent out. June finally, uh, the ordinance was passed and they suspended the IBC in entirety. Before this time, for three months, there was constant debate on oh, but are they planning to suspend the IBC in its entirety or will they suspend only creditor filings? Now, just to give your listeners some context, under the IBC, the debtor himself, the debtor firm, can itself file for triggering the insolvency process against itself. A creditor can trigger. Um, what most people thought is that perhaps what the government will do is suspend, what the parliament would do is it would suspend creditor filings because all around the world, this is what a lot of countries have done. So except for the U.S., a uh, bulk of the mature, you know, Western sort of uh, jurisdictions that have mature bankruptcy systems have suspended parts of their bankruptcy law. They have suspended uh, the creditor filings, which is that they don't allow creditors to trigger the bankruptcy law. And they have suspended what is known as the debtor filing when the debtor, because in these countries in EU, for example, the debtor is under an obligation to file for bankruptcy if he is on the verge of a default. So they've suspended the duty, the, you know, the debtor's duty to file related provisions, but they haven't suspended voluntarily, voluntary petitions by the debtor to trigger the bankruptcy in respect of himself. In India, on the other hand, we took the approach that we will suspend the whole thing. And if you see the preamble of that ordinance, it spells out the following reason, which is that in these conditions, it is not likely that the firms that are in IBC will get a lot of bids for reorganization. And uh, so the, the parliament has literally, I mean, it's an ordinance, so I would say the president has literally spelt it out in the preamble, which is that if firms get into IBC, uh, maybe they won't get as many bids and most of these firms will be liquidated. Now, this really links to a very, very entrenched bias in uh, the way, you know, Indian policymaking works, which is that liquidation of a firm is a bad thing. Now, it may indeed be true that large scale liquidation of firms may cause economic disruption uh, in a disproportionate way. However, to read into the law an explicit reorganization bias to the extent that you actually suspend the law because you're too scared that too many firms will be liquidated is really uh, not doing uh, you know too much service to the rule of law or to the certainty or the predictability of the law so the thought process i believe of the government in suspending the ibc is that look there is no other recovery measure that really works in India. Today, if somebody were to default on debt, filing a civil suit is either too expensive or too tedious. Arbitration is the other option, too expensive. The third option is that I'll enforce my security. Are you likely to get a bid if I were to sell a flat right now that has been mortgaged? You may probably get, will get at a depressed value. So that's the third option. The only other choice is therefore IBC. IBC is has proved to be a pretty effective threat because it suspends the management. So maybe what the government thought is that if a lot of defaults are committed, it's likely that IBC will be the single, you know, resort and, and then you'll see a lot of liquidations. Maybe that's the thought process underlying this. And that's why they've suspended the entire law. Um, how is it playing out? Do you want to talk about that right now? Or do you have any questions yeah, perhaps, about you know, 
yeah, maybe we'll just take a few others, you know, talk about a couple of other things and then come back to this question of where to go. Because I think you've identified the problems quite rightly. So, you know, I just want to switch gears and ask for a moment, given the nature of the shock that the pandemic and the lockdown have given to the economy, uh, it seems pretty clear that we are going to face, uh, you know, a scale, uh, bankruptcies on a scale perhaps that we have not seen in recent years. And the government has also taken some steps to mitigate the scale of the bankruptcies. Uh, for instance, I'm thinking of things like the credit guarantee scheme that they held out for small and medium enterprises. Uh, there's this one-time credit restructuring offer and so on. I was just wondering, you know, how effective do you think these kinds of measures will be in terms of managing the scale of the problem? I mean, the instrument and the IBC will come back to, but I, at this point, I just want to get a bit of a sense of what do you think the scale of the problem is going to be and how effective has the government's measures been or not been in tackling the actual, the, the main problem itself, which is going to come upon us pretty soon. Right. Mm, good question. Can I, can we, can anybody put a number to the scale of the problem that we are likely to see? I'm not so sure because as even intuitively, right? You know that some sectors are worse affected than others. So, for example, I would argue that actually FMCG and IT is less affected. IT may have, in fact, benefited than, say, for example, real estate or the auto sector, which was anyway undergoing some sort of massive distress in the last one, one and a half years, right? So, it is not clear what this number will be. It's pretty obvious that it is a the problem will be of a scale that we haven't seen before. Um, so just let's take a step back, okay? What have governments done all around the world because they all are anticipating this problem? There are four tools that they have used. One is, of course, a monetary policy tool where you say that actually I'll keep interest rates at a level such that liquidity in the system is always available and uh, things well, just flow around. The second is fiscal support where the government or the central bank directly lends to businesses, which is what I think the US and the UK have done to some extent, maybe even India. The third is where the banking sector has given the moratorium, where they say that it's okay, don't pay your dues during this time and we'll figure it out maybe six months, eight months down the line. And the fourth is some tweaks to the bankruptcy law. These are the four tools that are available in the arsenal of any policymaker who wants to deal with the situation. The point is that none of these tools in isolation will work. To what extent all four or a combination of them will also work is unclear, right? In India, what have we done? We said, okay, monetary policy to some extent, maybe it works, but then as you, as a lot of your listeners, as you might know, is that transmission of monetary policy in India takes time, okay? It is not clear to what extent the interest rate cuts or the repo cuts that RBI makes really transmits to the last end consumer in terms of the, the cost of borrowing for the last consumer. The second is fiscal support. Now, fiscal support, the government has given in the form of loan guarantee schemes, where they've said that, look, there are some kinds of borrowers, mostly MSMEs, who will be eligible for loans from the banking sector. And we promise that we will repay the bank if the borrower defaults. I mean, in very simplistic terms, that's what they've sought to do. 
The third tool is the moratorium, which the banking sector has implemented to some extent. And the last one is bankruptcy, which they have completely taken off the charts. Now, if I were a rational entrepreneur, what would I do? I would say that, you know what, I'm going to take the benefit of this moratorium. Let the interest accumulate because the interest keeps running. At the end of six months, when the moratorium period is over, I will trigger the bankruptcy against myself and force the creditors to restructure because I will not be in a position to pay the accumulated interest, right? So I have to force the creditors to take a haircut, sit around the table and use that tool to my benefit to restructure myself well. That option is no longer available. So you are left in the situation where people are availing of the moratorium. Interest is accumulating. They do not know whether they will be able to pay at the end of August 31st, after August 31st, whether they will be able to pay the accumulated interest. If they are not able to pay the accumulated interest, will they get the benefit of an RBI one-time restructuring scheme? Right Now, that's the big question because that scheme just came out maybe two weeks ago. And the question is, what kind of firms are eligible for it and whether the banks will give it or not? Because let's not forget that even this one-time restructuring scheme has been left to the discretion of banks. Will everybody get it? Who all? We, we just don't know. Um, so there is... Now, you add this to the uncertainty that the judiciary has bought, brought in. So I don't know if you're aware, but even the RBI moratorium circular, which says that interest will keep running and will accumulate... And at the end of six months, people who have availed of the moratorium will have to pay the accumulated interest is being litigated before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has said we'll decide in the first week of August, which means what? You don't know whether or the banks don't know to what extent will they have to forego the amounts that are due to them. So my, my, even in terms of suspension of the IBC, right? Okay, right now it's been suspended to up, up to September end. That may be extended to March 2021. So we don't know whether IBC will come back in September or in March. When will that tool really be available? We just don't know. So the point is that um, while the government has tried a lot of things, maybe it's actually ended up causing a lot of uncertainty because a lot of these measures have been tried in a half-hearted manner. Suspending the IBC totally was a bad idea. They should have at least kept the debtor filings the, the ability of a debtor to file for IBC alive. That's number one. The other important thing is that they should have used this time to notify the provisions relating to personal insolvency. Now, IBC is divided as a law between into two sections. First part deals with corporate insolvencies. The second part deals with individual insolvencies. That is where most of our unincorporated sole proprietorship businesses sit. The second, that part has not been notified since the time IBC was enacted. If I were the policymaker, it would have been a good, I would have tried to actually just start that, to notify that part so that people can use individual bankruptcy related provisions to apply for, you know, a, a debt restructuring with their bankers and uh, uh, start with a fresh slate once this thing, you know, is over and they are able to get fresh loans, etc. So uh, on the bankruptcy front, we're really, uh, I think, you know, the performance is rather dismal. On the moratorium front, okay, let's see what's going on. Like I mentioned, there is uncertainty because it's being litigated before the Supreme Court. The second thing that's going on is that we just don't know how many people are availing of the moratorium because disclosures are not uh, uh, 
up to the mark, right? We don't know what is the extent to which, what what are the kind of people who are availing the moratorium? What is the extent to which it has been availed of? And what is going to happen in August? I mean, the Supreme Court will take up the matter anytime now. The third is on the government guarantees. All right. So on government guaranteed loans, my question is to a banker, in a world where IBC is suspended, what is your confidence of being able to recover the money if the borrower defaults from the government, right? We don't know. We, we all know the standard payment uh, related issue from government, the delays in payments, how much more confident are bankers of getting the guaranteed amount from the government? I don't know. Um, so that is where we are in terms of the different, the four sets, the four tools used by the government of India to deal with COVID. And do you think going forward, perhaps, especially on the bankruptcy side, uh, we may need other kinds of tools? I mean, for instance, back in the day, there used to be this discussion about saying, does India need bad banks, right? Banks which can, one kind of a bank which can basically suck out all the bad loans from the books of banks. So the banking system's balance is healthier. And then could begin a process for auctioning the assets, uh, you know, by some kind of a bidding process. Now, uh, you know, we are recording this on 24th of August and just this morning's newspaper has an article by the former chief economic advisor, Arvind Subramaniam, who says that, you know, perhaps it's time to think about a judicial process plus a bad bank executive-led process, especially for two sectors, uh, real estate and power, both of which are in a deep mess and where the IBC's performance has actually been pretty dismal. So uh, do you think it's time to start thinking about adding a few more sort of arrows onto our quiver? Right. Um, Let's think about this. Yes. So to a large extent, the problems of the real estate sector and the power sector are a legacy that maybe the IBC, uh, as a relatively speaking new law, may not be able to deal with. Um, And maybe for those two sectors, a bad bank is the only way out. I think we've tried this in the case of years ago, right? When the UTI, uh, when we broke up the UTI, uh, the US 64 schemes into the bad bank and the good bank, and uh, we managed to then wind up the bad bank over many, many years. So perhaps for the real estate and power sector, maybe that's the only choice. But will that is that an approach that we should take on an ongoing basis or should we think in terms of uh, banking regulation and how do we reform banking regulation such that we are not always stuck with this situation where, you know, we have a bulk of the loans that are not performing and we have, we haven't provisioned enough for them and we often do not know the extent of them. And then the government has to recapitalize because it's too late to do anything else, right? So maybe one way of thinking about it is that let's solve this one-time problem of the real estate sector and the power sector with the bad bank solution. But let's simultaneously commit ourselves to better banking regulation such that, you know, these problems of every 10 years having an NPA crisis doesn't come up again. Because she had the problem is not the NPAs. The problem is that there isn't enough provisioning for it because simply because nobody knows the extent of it. It's much better now than what it used to be. But uh, it is it is truly uh, uh, what what we really need is banking regulation reform for a bankruptcy system to work because every default cannot possibly be litigated through bankruptcy. What you need to solve is banking regulation. Uh. 
I, I entirely agree with you. I think, I think that that's a very important kind of underlying issue. And in some ways, these are all only surface manifestations of that. Uh, but given we are where we are and COVID is still looming, uh, if you were to advise the government to focus on perhaps two or three policy interventions in looking out for this insolvency crisis that may just come upon us like a big wave, what would you see? Right. Okay. That's 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 a million dollar question, right? Okay. So let's think. Yeah. So the first thing that I think uh, any government should be thinking is how do I ease the individual proprietor, retailer, his pain in dealing with his debt, right? It, it, there is no point running away from the question, how do individuals deal with their debt at the end of this COVID period? If you do not, you have a bankruptcy law sitting on your statute books since four years. You haven't built institutional capacity to get it going. I mean, that is a really sad state of affairs. If by now you would have built the ecosystem for individuals to be able to access the bankruptcy system, uh, we would have been in a much better off position. It's still not too late. I mean, we've suspended the law. Maybe, you know, there is some freed up capacity in pockets and you use that such that at the end of six months, when the bankruptcy law comes back, there will be proprietors, there will be micro and medium entrepreneurs who are unincorporated entities. And if they want to seek restructuring, they do not have to be at the discretion and the whims of banks, of individual banks. They should be able to use the shelter of the law, force banks to come on the table, make them restructure such that they can restart their lives on a fresh slate, right? So for example, you how do you see this happening in well-developed bankruptcy jurisdictions. It's often it is a one-time online process that you know individuals have to use to be able to restructure their debts. So I think action point number one, get the individual bankruptcy system going. Set up the ecosystem. You have the law sitting on the statute book. Just start running with it. That's the first thing. The second thing that you would do is, I guess, um, make uh, just identify the size of the problem. And for that, you need to make sure that banks disclose the extent to which moratorium has been availed. Uh, what is the amount? What is the hit on their balance sheet? Um, and uh, if, if those disclosures are available, everybody will be better off in terms of their decision-making, whether it be the depositors, whether it be the lenders, uh, whether it be bondholders, right? Uh, banks raise capital also by issuing bonds. All this has to be priced into the prices of their bonds. Um, so I think disclosures is the next best thing given where we are right now. Um, and third is, I mean, I think this is a sort of a national, if I may use the word propaganda level uh, uh, campaign that needs to be started that is destigmatize bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is not, you know, a punishment. Uh, the reason why we are where we are is because we've always viewed bankruptcy as a bad thing. That's why the first thing that we do when we see a financial crisis is that we suspend the bankruptcy law or make it more difficult for people to access the bankruptcy system. I think we need a conscious effort for people to accept that bankruptcy actually may help them restructure their lives and restart on a fresh slate. And if the, if the regulator has to start these kind of awareness and sensitization campaigns, so be it. Bhargavi, it was great to chat with you. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you. It was great being here. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage.